I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, the podcast that's part history and part science, and all about how the Midwest influences the United States as a whole. But here's the thing, I'm not from the Midwest. So for each episode, I do all the research, and then I sit down with folks who are from here. And together, we discuss famous people, inventions, and cultural trends that got their start right here in the middle of America. I'm here with my special guests in the studio, and they do not know what this episode is about yet. But we are taping this Halloween episode late at night. It's almost 10 o'clock here because that just seemed like the right thing to do for an episode about Ouija boards. Nice. Yes. So excited. Yes. (laughs) This month's episode, we are exploring the origins of Ouija boards. And yes, there is a Midwestern connection. Coming along this nocturne journey with me tonight are two friends of mine, Shannon and Matthias Godzill, and they're married. Hi, guys. Hey, Emily. Thanks for having us. And Shannon, I know that you were born and raised in Chicago, right? Yes. And so we consider that Midwest, yeah? Absolutely. Heart of it. Okay. Sorry, Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) And Matthias, you are from? I was born in Arizona, uh, but spent most of my childhood in Missouri and then moved into Nebraska when I was in high school. Okay. So you still count? Yeah, we'll call it Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) And importantly for this episode, Shannon, you believe in ghosts and things, right? Absolutely. Since day one. Thanks to my mom. <laughs> and Matthias? I am fairly skeptical. Okay. Uh, I'll just put it like that. All right, all right, all right. So Chicago is known for being one of the most haunted cities in the United States. But that's not where our story begins. In truth, it's hard to pin down the origins of the Ouija board to just one place. Because the idea that a handheld pointer could be controlled by spirits communicating messages has been around really since humans have had unanswered questions and shaky hands subject to the idiomotor effect, which is a scientific term for unconscious movements, but we'll get to that later in the episode. It's been around since at least 1100 AD in ancient China during the Song Dynasty, But the iteration that we are familiar with in the United States is the Ouija board, which is packaged as a board game. How would would you guys describe a Ouija board for people who don't know what it is? There are uh, letters and, and numbers, and you have this little figurine that everyone in the room puts their hands on it. And the triangle goes over either the number or the letter after you've asked the spirit the question. So that's the big thing is that you got to ask a question, then you put your hands on it, then the spirit guides you. I've never done it, but I've seen... Oh, I've done it a lot. I just know that they were banned from our household. My mom is, is very into ghosts, very into spirits, and she would not even entertain the idea of us having one at home. Wow. Okay. I think it's good to know that this is something that I grew up with and maybe you not as familiar. Yeah. And this hit the United States around the time of the American Civil War. With so many people losing loved ones, there was a a desire really across the country for ways to communicate with the dead. And there were believed to be certain mediums that spirits would use to make contact and uh, certain people. And this belief that there are certain people and certain mediums really hasn't gone away. So to find out more, I sat down with two paranormal investigators right here in Omaha. I'm Michael Beacom. I'm Cassandra Beacom. Uh, Our group is called the Great Plains Supernatural Investigations, or GPSI for short. And they are also married. They started dating after realizing Michael's interest in the paranormal and that Cassandra is a sensitive person. And she describes her sensitivity to spirits this way. If you're sensitive, you're like a little light bulb, and it's trying to get to you to get its communication. Somebody can hear me. It's like being 
over in a foreign country and nobody speaks English. And you find that one person that speaks English, you're drawn to it. That's the way spirit is. And she says that it's not always that dramatic, though, that sometimes it can be really subtle. Everyone has a little bit of sensitivity. And you kind of sometimes know, hmm, I just feel mom is on my mind and, you know, I'm thinking about that bread she made or you smell something. It might show up at a weird time and right when you need it. And you just feel reassured. I can understand where she's coming from, but it's all it all depends on how you view things and how it, how you kind of filter how you feel. So Shannon is you're shaking your head. <laughs> Why? Because I I grew up with a very Irish Catholic great-grandmother who from Ireland brought all these ideas of you know, you talk to your loved ones who have passed, you have conversations with them, even if they, no one else sees them in the room. And so my mom would tell us, oh, when you guys were kids, you'd play with your grandpa Jack, who had passed when my mom was 16. So there was always this feeling that somebody was around. And like, you know, even as a young child, I was taught that like, it's okay to have this feeling and that it's a safe feeling. I mean, and that's not uncommon. I think that's that's often the theme is that these spirits bringing comfort. Right. And so it makes sense that we see this happening during the war years in the United States. Um, so it was about 20 years after the American Civil War that this trend of paranormal communication really picked up. So an entrepreneur named Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, felt that there was an opportunity here. And he founded the Kennard Novelty Company, along with his partners, to produce their version of a talking board, the Ouija board. The patent was granted in 1891, and this must have been one of the only patents ever issued for something which simply claims to work, and it offers no explanation of how it does. If you, I, I found the actual patent record, and it just says it works. <laughs> Believe it. And that is how it started oh, oh, oh. in 1891. Did not know it was around that long. I'm sure their margins were amazing on that game. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Because there's nothing to it. <laughs> right? There's, there's so much to it. Yes. <laughs> nothing so that much. you have to pay for because it's all spiritual, right? He probably made a lot of money on it. I mean, the overhead was fairly low. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Didn't cost a whole lot of money. Makes to sense. Make this. And they, so they didn't need to know how the board worked to know that it would sell. And sell it did. By the end of the 1800s, they had factories all across the country, including Chicago. <laughs> but you know Chicago can't be the only Midwest connection. We wouldn't make a whole episode about that. So let me introduce you to Lawrence. He goes by Punky, like a pumpkin. <laughs> My name is Lawrence Punky Chapman. I've been called Punky since the day I was born uh, 85 years ago, and um, the nurse, um, when she brought me in, she said, Mrs. Chapman, here's your little punky boy. And that's how the name stuck, and then lasted for these all these years. Yeah, so I pointed out to him the obvious connection with Halloween and that his nickname is a pumpkin. <laughs> um, and he reassured me that he's not superstitious, so that doesn't mean anything to him. <laughs> but that's, so that's Punky. And he's born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, the son of Isidore and Gertrude Chapman. And Punky remembers how hard times were here in Omaha during the war years, World War II. Uh, food and other resources were being rationed. Businesses were closing because their workers were fighting overseas, and he was about nine or ten. And he remembers how his father dealt with the gas rations. On our way to the plant, my dad would stop at the very top of the hill uh, before we, we came down the hill to the plant. He would turn off the car motor and coast down the hill to the manufacturing plant. And that was his small way of contributing the war effort. So at a time when everyone was involved with the war effort, this would have been a crazy time to start a business. But that is exactly what his father, Isidore Chapman, did. He got into the Ouija board business. Their board was called the Ouija Queen. But it, it, it wasn't Isidore's idea. He wasn't interested in Ouija boards, actually, at all. He had another business that was doing quite well at the time. My, my family was in the finance business called Iowa Finance Company, which my grandfather founded in 1909 in Council Bluffs, Iowa. 
And when World War II broke out, the managers of our company were drafted for military service. And since my dad had served in World War One. Uh, he was ineligible for service. So while his father was holding down the business alone, another Omaha businessman, James Acuff, came to Isidore with the idea, looking for a loan. And my dad, in fact, made him an unsecured loan for, I think, around five to $10,000, which was a good amount of money for such turbulent times. And about a year later, uh, Mr. Acuff came to my dad's office and informed him that he'd run through all the money that getting raw materials was a problem and the marketplace was too crowded. And my dad was naturally disappointed, but he understood. And wanting to recover the money, my dad asked Mr. Acuff if he could take over the project and see what he could do with it. And Mr. Acuff said, well, sure. But anyway, that's how my dad began the Ouija board journey. And I don't think at that time he could really spell Ouija board. At this point, he didn't know a darn thing about it. So this whole thing was not his idea. It was just because he made a loan to somebody who lost all the money, and Isidore doesn't want to lose the money. So he says, well, let me see if I could do your job better. (laughs) Otherwise, his family would not have gotten into this business. Right. And that's why stopping at the top of the hill was such a vivid memory for Punky, because the Ouija board factory was at the bottom of a hill in South Omaha, and his father would take him there almost every Sunday. You know, the, the whole thing, uh, seeing a plan in operation for a 9- or 10-year-old kid was really um, exciting. So I was happy to be invited to go on the trips to the plant with him. Don't forget these were wood products that were processed, sawdust and wood chips and all. And the, um, and the sawdust was flying all around. So the plant was filled with dust. The line of products were coming out, and then they were being stamped with the color stamping. Uh, you know, ink has a particular smell. And this was a small factory, and that's the reason that it was actually still available in 1943, at a time when all the other larger factories in the city were being used for the war effort. So it was perfect for making uh, small runs of Ouija boards, at least in the beginning. And uh, when I was this age, my dad would take me to the manufacturing plant in South Omaha on Sundays, and I watched the boards coming off the small assembly line, and it was really mesmerizing to me at that age. I mean, I just couldn't imagine these were all coming out as fast as they did. And with so much of the young American workforce fighting overseas, the people working in the factory, with all these whizzing boards on the assembly line, were the ones who stayed home during the war. The women actually were working in, in the wartime factories. There were a, a lot of women and uh, there were a lot of uh, older people who had fought in World War One, like my dad, and were ineligible for the draft, but needed to make a living. And because so many of these workers had sons and fathers, brothers, and even sisters overseas, the boards provided more than a paycheck for them. The workers at the factory had taken some of the boards home, and, and they used them with their families. And, and I, I know that it gave them, some of them mentioned that it gave them hope and at the same time kept them uplifted for the next day's work. So the, the uh, boards were actually serving a, um, another purpose at the same time. And so that's like what we were talking about earlier, is that this, this idea that it really, more than anything, it brings comfort to people. Completely agree. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that right here in Omaha, we had family members of war you know, torn people, and uh, they were relying on something as crazy as, a, you know, in Matthias's terms, of a, as a wheezy board to provide comfort. I mean, and the fact, like you said, it, this was 1940s, and he's remembering it so vividly at an, at an age of 85. And and like it's wild to think that during World War II, all the factories in Omaha would have been occupied for the war effort. And this factory in South Omaha is producing Ouija boards, which is not separate from the war effort in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea came up a lot in my conversation with the paranormal investigators, Michael and Cassandra. And this notion of comforting people through their investigations is really what stands out as being at the heart of their work. Some people just need the reassurance that they're not crazy, and they just need somebody to talk to who won't look at them in that light. And I should say, Cassandra and Michael take no money for what they do. So any comfort that they bring or reassurance that they bring to folks 
never sees an exchange of money. But Cassandra says that honestly, sometimes it's not them, it's the spirits themselves that bring the comfort. And you don't need a Ouija board for that. If you're driving to work and you're sitting there at that stoplight and it's near mom's birthday, why not just say happy birthday, mom, I miss you. Sometimes you just get the feeling that she heard you. Um, so it's, it's weird, but it's not uh, terrifying. Let's face it, sometimes our loved ones that have gone to the other side check in on us. Guardian angels? Guardian angels. Sometimes it's just that. I like how we talked about uh, guardian angels. And that, that's the safe one, too, is guardian angels. Right, you know, totally. Like, to talk about poltergeists and yeah. other things like that is, is not so popular. Uh, but guardian angels, it seems like most of us are like, ah, Sure. I can deal with that. I can deal yeah. With sure. I like if you got one of those laying around, I'd take one. And in the middle of World War II, this is this is really a, a time when many Americans would have been looking for guardian angels, or they would have at least had some unanswered questions about the afterlife. The war years were certainly filled with fear and unknown certainty, and um, the Ouija boards were a way of people getting answers and having hope and the like. The Ouija board represented solace and a way for people to connect with the spiritual side and some comfort in what was going on with their family members abroad. So the U.S. is once again experiencing a boom in talking board popularity, and in large part it's because of the war, which is also what made starting a business so difficult at this time. I mean, how do you make a board game when wooden boards are being rationed? <laughs> The first thing that my dad had to do is hopefully find a raw material to make the boards. Um, with the war effort, wood, which is what many of the um, producers were using, was out of the question. It was too expensive. It was being rationed. And as the story goes, uh, he basically entered a paper facility one day where he noticed aisle after aisle stacked with boards. And when he asked the owner about the boards, uh, the owner responded that they were particle boards. So my dad said, well, gosh, can I place color printing on them? And when the owner said yes, the game was on. Well, no pun intended, but the game was on. He definitely intended that pun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so this was different. Um, up until this point, the board games really were made out of wood. So this was a pretty big break when Isidore found this stuff called particle board, which was a fairly new product at that point. So do you think one worked better than the other? I think this was lighter, and it was certainly cheaper. Yeah. Oh, you mean in terms of spiritual like, stuff? <laughs> were, were spirits yes. more likely to go to the higher-end wood? Shannon, I'll default or... to you for this no. question. Spirit... Didn't matter? No. no. It is a feeling, okay? They don't... This is just... This is an avenue, but... Okay. No. But I don't think they would come to you. Maybe we should try. Yeah. Because <laughs> you doubt them. That's why. Mm-hmm. And with this unique idea, the business really took off, despite the constraints of a country engaged in war. You know, you think about now with current military personnel when they pass away overseas. There's lots of questions even um, in the year 2019. So, you know, if there's questions now, could you imagine the kind of questions that happened in, you know, the 1940s when the communication was very different and the um, involvement of families with what happened to their loved ones was probably minimal. And so I think if this was the one chance of a family to talk to a family member or have an idea of what happened right before they passed, it was probably, you know, a good bet. They didn't just FaceTime. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. yeah. And so we do see this, like, throughout history, when there's a war, there is a boom and a resurgence of popularity with these things. So for some examples of this, this is where it gets really fun. I have some newspaper articles for you to read. Okay. Okay. So it's <laughs> awesome. This first one that I would like you to read is most striking. This is from the Omaha Bee, Saturday, November 8th, 1919. And I will hand this over to whoever wants to read it and maybe just start by reading the title there. Omaha will never forget the false alarm that was promoted by the Omaha Daily News a year ago yesterday when that newspaper put upon the streets a fake extra edition whose glaring headlines read, Armistice Signed Revolution in Germany. 
Above, you see on one of the sources of the premature, unconfirmed fake reports published by the Daily News. People all over the civilized world were in a mood to receive without question any news which might indicate the cessation of hostilities, and it was an easy advantage taken by the Omaha Ouija board. Okay, so they are calling out the Omaha Daily News here, and they're making a joke of it, but the fact is, they falsely reported the end of war. World War One because a Ouija board predicted it. Stop. It's true. Wait, so a Ouija board was incorrect? <laughs> uh, I don't believe that. <laughs> and so from this year, from this day forward, the other newspapers started calling the Omaha Daily News the Omaha Ouija board for this blunder of their Ouija board armistice. Oh my goodness. Jeez. Okay, so then, uh, so here's another one. This one is from 1969, when the Vietnam War had consumed, you know, the lives of so many. Um, And you can just read, start with reading the headline here. Journeys to the Twilight Zone, or Your Invisible Classmates. So this was a class taught as part of the University of Nebraska's Nebraska Free University, a branch of the school formed by students who were upset that they felt like their curriculum was not expressing what they really wanted to learn. So this Nebraska Free University was entirely formed by students, and they designed their own curriculum, and they planned all of their own classes, and topics included things like racism, urban politics, psychedelics, and paranormal studies. And so this class in particular looks at UFOs and how Ouija boards work. Yeah, I was going to say, the fact that it was designed by students is really, I mean, it's super interesting. Sounds like a real intense course, just playing with Ouija boards. Yeah. Yeah. But read read what the the professor says about it in in this article. Ouija boards? They don't always give exact prophecies, he explained. You know, cover all your bases, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) There is some psychological tie between the users of the Ouija board, he said, but research is necessary to determine more about how they work. I wonder how that research went. Well, I mean, isn't it cool? He's calling out here, 1969. He's not even saying that they work because of spirits. He is insinuating there's something inside, like a psychological thing. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, there's so much psychology to all of this, and I think that's probably why... I personally find it so interesting because mm-hmm. there's so much of psychology that we don't understand. Personally, I make those ties, but right. that's what's so interesting about spirits. That's what's so interesting about this phenomenon, the fact that there's a connection between people not hearing from their loved ones, being in a war, you know, torn country and wanting this, you know, like when somebody can't explain something, when somebody needs that connection, this is what your brain does. Right. And it's nice that you kind of separate it. Like, just because we can't explain this doesn't immediately mean, oh, there's spirits. It's ghosts that are doing this. It's you know a shame they? they didn't get any credit for any of these classes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally credit-free oh, university. No. Yeah. Why? Or part of the university. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, though. Yeah. But this is on the forefront of, you know, psychology and everything, you know. At, yeah, yeah, right, this is 19, yeah, right. so this right. is 1969. Right. But really, as long as people have believed in paranormal activity, there have been people who are trying to crack the real science of what could be behind these seemingly mysterious events. So um, Michael Shermer is someone I got to speak with for this episode. Uh, Michael Shermer is one of the foremost skeptics of our day, the founding publisher of Skeptics Magazine, in fact. Hey, I am Michael Shermer, the professor at Chapman University, and I write science books like The Moral Arc and Heavens on Earth. And I have a podcast called The Science Salon Podcast. And he and I spoke over the phone, and he says that a belief in Ouija boards and other supernatural happenings is a reflection of the brain's deep tendency to seek patterns. People don't believe weird things, as we describe it, because they're ignorant or stupid or uneducated. We all believe weird things. We all tend toward this anecdotal thinking, this connecting A to B. Like my thought experiment here is, you know, you're a hominid on the plains of Africa millions of years ago, and you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? It, it's a lower-cost error to assume the worst, just in case. 
I've read a lot of books about uh, human evolution from Richard Dawkins and uh, various others. He talks about the same same kind of things because that, if you are nervous about something that you can't can't explain and you run away from it, well, chances are it could be nothing or it could have been a tiger. That can take you out of the Darwinian gene pool. So my argument is that superstitious thinking, magical thinking, the, the idea of just connecting A to B is just a natural process of what brains do. So it was that was selected for... Right, and to follow those patterns. If you see your brother eat the red berry and he dies, you don't eat the red exactly. berry. Right. Mm-hmm. The ones who do are no longer our brothers. <laughs> <laughs> So this can't all be bad, right? I mean, this is what this is what humans are made to do. Absolutely, we, we find patterns so we don't die. And it's what connects humans. It's what connects us to each other. Exactly what he's saying, where you want these connections between A and B, and it is very discomforting to not know what A to B could mean, and that's why people tend to stay in certain careers. That's why people tend to stay in certain relationships is because we want to be comfortable. But I think it's just such a human thing to want comfort. And I think it's how our brain is wired. And so sometimes, you know, when we step outside of that, I think that's what's so great about like spirits and religion is that it isn't explaining anything. It is that unknown. So it forces us to be something that's not necessarily human. And it so hard. Yeah, really hard. You know, it's that challenging thing that you can't explain something or you have to step outside the box or you have to go against what's maybe natural. Um, and so that's, I think, even though these patterns are what make us human, I think it's pushing the envelope or pushing ourselves outside of that comfort that make us human and connect us as well. But that's just me being like yoga-y. <laughs> Because as much as I love science, I think there is so much to human nature and these areas of human nature that we can't explain. So what Michael Shermer is pointing to is that finding all these patterns, that is what leads us to these paranormal beliefs. But it's almost what you're saying is for you, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but for you, it's the opposite because this is one point in your life where you're okay with the fact that there's not a pattern and you can't connect the dots. I mean, you're a pediatrician. Right. So you spend all day connecting dots. Totally. And come to conclusions and you, you develop treatments. Absolutely. But this is a part of your life that you accept that you can't actually find the pattern and it just is. Right. But I think there's a lot of physicians who will agree that there is a science and an art of medicine. And so although there's a lot of patterns that are algorithmic um, and that makes medicine comfortable, there is an essence of medicine that cannot be explained in an algorithm. And there's things that happen to my patients, to their families, to their disease process that even science and I and experts and the textbooks can't explain. And so that has really pushed me to live outside of the algorithms sometimes, push myself, push my comfort level, push my families and my patients to know that maybe there's some things we can't control, but um, that's part of life. But at the same time, you're held to certain standards and you have protocols that you Absolutely. know work. So you have to, if this box is checked, you must do this thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based medicine is what helps me on the day-to-day. -day. But there's some things that happen in medicine that if I was so rigid in thinking that any everything had to be a box, I would not be able to treat my patients the way that I do. Because if you are thinking that you're very you know, healthy patient can't get something that's very rare, then you're missing the boat. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you speak about evidence-based medicine. Yeah. And this is something that our paranormal investigators, Michael and Cassandra, talked to me a lot about. They will set up experiments that look like something that you would see in a college psych lab, for example. Here's, here's Michael again. We'd been actually trying to test a different supposition we had these little balls in the middle of the floor there are several children that died in Velisca and see people report seeing the children so we had children's toys okay so the Velisca axe murder house have you heard of this place I haven't no okay it's in Iowa and it was a private residence uh, it was a home where 
where seven people were killed by having an axe uh, applied to their head. Uh, so we had children's toys. They called it a trigger object, trying to see if this will, will start some activity. And there was some activity when they were there, but only in one part of the room. And the area indicated was the only place in the room that was not covered by a camera. But if something were trying to come into the room and not be observed, that was the only corner to do it. And, and I find that, uh, while it's, that's coincidental, I think it's significant. Because that's what a child would do, he says. They would, you know, come into the room, sneak into the room, and try to not be seen. I just think it's hilarious that they put cameras everywhere. And the, the place they didn't put cameras is where all of the paranormal activity has happened. <laughs> and, of course, a skeptic like you or anyone else, a skeptic would say that that is just seeing a pattern. That's finding a pattern when one is not really there. And that it's just the brain made up of all these chemical and electrical firings doing its pattern-finding thing. Here is Michael Shermer again to explain. You know, brains consist of neurons, which are individual cells that are connected to other neurons, but not physically touching. They're just very, very close, and they swap neurochemical transmitter substances across these little gaps called synapses. And it's a really, really tiny little gap. But the point is that it's mostly chemistry. And it turns out that one pretty familiar neurotransmitter chemical is a key player here, and that's dopamine. Dopamine is the neurochemical transmitter substance associated with learning and rewards. It feels good to learn something new. It feels good to be rewarded for something you've done in a positive way. That has been tracked to these dopaminergic neurons in the brain. They just produce dopamine, so you get a little hit of dopamine. And according to some researchers, dopamine might actually facilitate finding these kind of patterns. So you can give subjects a, a little hit of dopamine, uh, and they'll see uh, you know, sort of in the random patterns, they'll see meaningful patterns. They'll, you, know, you just get them a degraded image, and they'll, you know, they'll see a ghost or, or whatever the image is in their in their minds. If you give them a little hit of dopamine, so indeed there are some studies that show when self-proclaimed skeptics are given the drug levodopa, which converts into dopamine, they're more likely to see patterns, words, and faces in the case of this study than without the dopamine increasing drug on board. And of course, if you go too far in that direction, towards clinically high levels of dopamine, that begins to indicate conditions like schizophrenia. It's also why people get addicted to drugs and alcohol, because it's a reward system. It's, it's dopamine or gambling or, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a substance. There's something there. Right. And dopamine does seem to be really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, in these processes, but it should also be pointed out that there are studies that show dopamine plays a key role in changing your belief in something. So go from believing in one thing to another, and apparently dopamine is involved. And one study in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences calls it out as supporting flexible behavior. And I say all of this just, just to say that we shouldn't be too quick to call out dopamine or any one chemical as the key to paranormal belief? You know, yes, there is study after study about dopamine. We know a lot about synapses. Um, and I will tell you from my medical side that I've uh, spent many of hours on learning all of these different neurotransmitters. But money, many of my psychology professors will be the first to tell you that schizophrenia is one of the most interesting abnormal uh, psychiatric disorders that are out there because there's so much that we don't understand. Yes, there is uh, some, to you know, we can say that there's uh, measured elevated levels of dopamine in patients with schizophrenia, but there's not a level that will automatically decide that this patient is seeing has having delusions. There's still stuff, you know, when it's related to science and dopamine and, and these psychiatric disorders um, that are still not understood. So keeping in mind that all of this kind of research um, in psychiatry and really anything having to deal with neuroscience, and when we start to talk about neurotransmitters, it's a very, very deep well. <laughs> and and yes. so just to keep that in mind, <laughs> that all this is really hard to pin down. So hard. But I, I did, I spoke with a group of really young, enthusiastic researchers, and they are students at the University of British Columbia, 
working under their principal investigator, Ronald Renesink, in the Visual Cognition Lab. And we spoke over FaceTime on our computers, so the audio's a little bit scratchy, uh, but they're, and they're very excited to talk as well <laughs> about their research. My name is Sarah, and I'm the project lead for the Ouija research experiment at the Visual Cognition Lab at UBC. So they're in Canada. <laughs> so you often hear Ouija instead of Ouija in Canada. And this is Sarah Throngpressert, and her team members on the Ouija project are Kushal Mohi and Sara Singh. And they were all there together in that room talking to me over FaceTime. And they are looking into alternative pathways of cognition that Ouija or Ouija boards might be able to reveal to us. Here's Sarah again. Using a Ouija board to kind of look at the unconscious mind to see if there's some sort of intelligence that we just aren't aware of. They're currently working on the second iteration of a study that published results in 2012 by Ellen Gouchot and colleagues also at the Visual Cognition Lab. And here's how they set up that study. They had individuals verbally answer factual questions, and then they gave them a Ouija board and had them use the planchette or the little pointer of the Ouija board to point to their answer. And importantly, there was also a robot arm quote, playing the, with the Ouija along with them. So the participants thought that they weren't in total control of it. However, the robot arm was actually just going along with the human movement, so truly it was all of their own doing, and it turns out... It was better. So that kind of like shows that there is maybe something. That's Kushal speaking. So for the answers that the participants were guessing on, not the questions that they already knew the answers to, but the ones that they were making guesses at, they did better with the Ouija board, which leads some researchers to speculate if there's actually something more than guessing going on here. So they also had test subjects play with a human partner who would slowly remove their hands from the Ouija pointer. And again, the test participant was in total control of the movement and they answered more accurately when using the Ouija than without. What I love about this is that they're saying that, they're, that there's something within, like you were saying, Emily, like our memory, our, our cognition that we just can't necessarily explain, but is definitely having to do with decision making. What they're working with right now at the core of their research is the idiomotor effect, which is a concept that has been associated with Ouija boards for a really long time. And this effect refers to muscular movements that are not consciously enacted, but they are also not pure reflexes. Um, so they're not like the way that your knee jumps when the doctor hits it with the little rubber mallet. These are movements that are proposed to be either random muscular firings or controlled on an unconscious level. And they are looking into the latter possibility that these movements could be controlled on an unconscious level. We are in the process of finding a solid conclusion as to what this really could mean. Right now, it's just a really cool effect. But beyond that, we are trying to see if potentially there's an underlying system that's going on, like unconsciously that we don't know about, that might be able to be in contact with information that we aren't consciously aware of. Even if it is, there's nothing to do with spirits or whatever, and it could just be something about the unconscious, I think that it does not really take away, because that kind of brings the point that it is still pretty impressive that there might be something. And their hope is that this something could be an alternative pathway of memory or cognition that could be helpful for individuals living with neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, that's their very long-term idea is that perhaps we could tap in to some level of consciousness that people could use once they lose access to that traditional pathway. But they do not have substantial enough results to show this yet. It is very inconclusive at the moment. That's a very large goal that we have in the future. Um, it's exciting, though, to think the possibilities that might be involved from these results. Because, um, for example, as I mentioned before, if there is 
a different kind of system that goes that involves our unconscious um, it's very possible that people with neurodegenerative diseases or Alzheimer's things like that could potentially communicate through those unconscious methods when they're unable to volitionally so if if we really find that there are actually very different pathways it is possible to kind of access that person let's say from a different pathway but that's only if there are like, yeah this is very um like the beginning stages of that kind of research <laughs> and because they are in the middle of conducting their version of the research they couldn't tell me very many details about their procedures but sarah said that it is different from the first version of the study and that we just have to wait for the publication to come out to see exactly how it's different and she did want to add this one last disclaimer, too. I will say, though, as a disclaimer, we are not trying to summon anything supernatural <laughs> with our experiment. This is awesome. They're going about it a way to explain what's going on without necessarily summoning demons. I mean, I do think that there's something to be said about this unconscious that we can't tap into um, and that whether that means it's a connection with the paranormal or a connection with ourselves, you know, I think it's just something that we can't necessarily explain. They're just so open about the fact that that we just don't know. We just don't right know. Now. Yeah. And so if Ouija boards can maybe help us unlock these alternative pathways of cognition, and historically they seem to bring some kind of comfort to the country in times of <laughs> war, right? So so can Ouija boards really be that bad? Why right. not believe? Yeah. What's the harm? Come on. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, both our skeptic, Michael Shermer, and our paranormal investigators say that Ouija boards are dangerous. Now, I wouldn't touch one with a 50-foot pole. That's Michael, our paranormal investigator, and he says that playing with a Ouija board is like opening a door that you don't know how to shut. Now, of course, Michael the skeptic has very different reasons for believing that there's danger here, and here's how he explains that. You know, the, the general idea that if you believe that spirits are moving the little planchette on the Ouija board, because there is this whole another realm, this supernatural realm, where these deities or demons or angels or gods exist, that has implications for other beliefs. And so you can scale up from there to, you know, concerns about religious beliefs and how they affect political beliefs or how they cause people to act in a certain way, say from going to a faith healer or... Or, or giving up your medicines because you don't believe in modern medicine because you believe in prayer or blowing up abortion clinics. You know, these very serious beliefs are grounded in the same worldview as the Ouija board. And this all goes back to the idea of this pattern-seeking brain that we started with. I mean, I just think that it's always good to have an open mind is my idea. Because just like even Michael is saying, if you have a closed mind, if this is the pattern that you always are going towards, you're not going to see outside of that typical pattern. I think it's super important not to get indoctrinated in an idea. Well, and that's what Michael Shermer says, too. It's when it gets super scary right. is when people hold on to these patterns. Yes. And it can get really extreme. Just think of the recent connection between autism and vaccines. Now, we've this has been disproved medically over and over and over. There's no connection at all. But the fact that that meme got started, that somebody connected the diagnosis of autism in their child with the vaccine they had recently had, that's just that kind of patternicity, that anecdotal thinking. There's been study after study after study that disproved this one notion that autism was caused by vaccines. Um, and so... The difference is there's people who die who do not get vaccines. People don't die by ghosting. So but I don't think that's fair for someone to say just because um, I believe in ghosts and that that's a huge part of how I was raised, that I can't be very, very scientifically based in my knowledge and my uh, fight for, for my pediatric patients. It's just a different aspect of life. I played college baseball, and so it, 
that aspect of my life, I was that was the most superstitious I had ever been. Baseball players are super. Oh yeah, I would have a good game, get like two or three hits, and I would think, okay, what did I have for breakfast? How did I put my clothes on? Science. And this is a science man talking. You know, since then, I wouldn't call myself superstitious. Maybe a, a little stitious. <laughs> Not super. <laughs> I was exactly. accessing that subconscious that the Canadians were were talking about. And I and I appreciate yeah. And I appreciate my husband sticking up for me, but you know, I think it is a—it's a hard dichotomy. <laughs> it doesn't—it happens. Um, it is a rare. I mean, I know that I'm—I'm I'm living when I'm making this argument and when I am looking at it from an outside perspective. It is this dichotomy that I'm trying to portray um, because I do feel very, very strongly about evidence-based medicine. Um, but I also am very proud of how I was raised and I'm very proud that my family thought that <laughs> there were spirits that made us feel comfortable and that maybe I was talking to my grandpa when I was, you know, 4 or 5 years old. Um but I think that I was lucky in my medical career uh learning that you know, western medicine is wonderful, but um it's not everything and that's why we're still learning. And I feel like you can't be the only one. You can't be the only doctor who lives with this dichotomy. I, I, like I was saying earlier, I think it's just the openness that it's made me a better doctor. Not to say that I'm a better doctor because I believe in ghosts. I think it makes me a better doctor that I know that there's things outside of me and my own experience that help me understand my patients better and might understand the disease process then better, too. I did not expect this to come up in the conversation, but I think it's interesting <laughs> how much you're bringing up like the thing that skeptics often accuse people who believe in ghosts of is that they hold too tightly to their patterns. Yeah. But it sounds like you're saying, well, that can also be the downfall. That's the downfall of any practice. And that's right. the downfall of medicine. If you hold too tightly to this is the protocol and you don't look at what all the other clues around you, then you're not going to you're not going to do service to anyone. Really. Absolutely. But I think what a lot of skeptics also say is that the problem is not everybody is able to keep that open mind. Like they get the tunnel vision about ghosts and paranormal and they stick to just those clues and they ignore the rest of the reality. Right. And that this can cross over into the very real and social realm. A viral, political, dangerous idea can spread through a culture like Germany in the 19, late 20s and early 30s. How is it that that came to fruition in a culture that was so educated, so cultured. How did that happen? So that's the kind of thing we're interested in. You know, in our culture, it's easy to just put your viewpoint out there and just keep and then find your people. Um, and I think it's very human to have your tribe, as Matthias and I always talk about, yeah. that you stick with this tribe. But unfortunately, if you just stick with a tribe of people who are always agreeing with you, then you do. You start to turn into Nazi Germany. Right. It becomes an echo chamber. So these are the concepts that Shermer digs into with his skepticism. But for our paranormal investigators, it's not the concept or the implication of a Ouija board that's dangerous. It's the board itself and what it can bring into your home. You turned on the light and say, hey, come on in. But you don't know how to make it go away. And just because you stop playing doesn't mean that they stopped listening. Once you've done that act, yeah, then that's they don't necessarily leave just because you're done playing. They're not. That's one of the reasons why when we do investigations, we always make sure we're very respectful about it. Uh, you see on some of these ghost shows where they go kicking the walls and trying to raise something up to do for TV. But in, in actuality, you're going in, I mean, if we go in there and stir stuff up, then at the end of the, you know, end of the investigation, we say, well, uh, yeah, you definitely are haunted and uh, have a nice day. And we, and we go home and the other people have to stay there and deal with it. So you don't want to be like that. Well, we, we would treat the spirit with respect, just like we would our client and each other. That's just common courtesy. And I think that we get a lot more positive responses if we treat them with respect. And this is actually really similar to something that Punky Chapman told me about his father. And, of course, this is not dealing with the spirit world. This is dealing with the business world. 
so interestingly enough, my dad had a saying which he lived by and passed on to my brothers and me, and that went like this, you can never go wrong by doing what's right. And living out this phrase, Isidore, his father, promised a portion of royalties on each board that he sold would go back to Mr. Acuff, who originally had the Omaha-born idea of the Ouija Queen boards. And when his father ended up doing quite well in this business, he actually made good on that promise, paying royalties back to Mr. Acuff. I would say that's such a good value that he obviously taught to his son, you know. Probably didn't want any of that bad juju. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> just a good person. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He saved the business to start. Right. He said, I'm going to see if I can recoup our losses and I'll give you royalties on each board. Yeah. But Isidore also did pretty well for himself and his family. He ended up being one of the larger Halloween manufacturers. They were the first one with those uh, skeletons that glowed in the dark. So Isidore Chapman's American Novelty Factory ended up producing glow-in-the-dark Halloween decorations for a few years uh, before he decided to leave the manufacturing business and go back to work in finance. Punky and his twin brothers all ended up playing some role in the family finance business when they were old enough, Uh, but Punky says that he still comes across some of the old glow-in-the-dark skeletons and Ouija queens on eBay, and he buys them. I I guess it just seems like the right thing to do. Um, I'm going to go on eBay and look for a, a Ouija board that was made in Omaha and historical. That'd be cool. I, I think that's, I do That'd think cool. that's neat. They go for like 200 some. bucks. Whoa. Wow. Shannon and Matthias, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me tonight uh, as our conversation is coming to an end now. And I will say I am a little afraid to go out and walk down the long, dark hallway uh, in in the studio here. Uh, But thank you nonetheless for coming out this evening. Thanks for having us. I'm very scared now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to scare the hell out of Shannon later. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You've been listening to Made in the Middle, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We'd like to thank our special guests, Shannon and Matthias Godsill. A big thank you also to the Omaha Public Library for research assistance. Lawrence Punky Chapman, thank you for sharing photos and stories of your father and the Ouija board industry. Thank you also to Michael and Cassandra Beacom, Michael Shermer and Maidcraft, and the whole Ouija board project team at the University of British Columbia Visual Cognition Lab and the Museum of Talkingboards.com. And a big thank you to Holly's Healthy Holes Pop-Up Donut Shop right here in Omaha for feeding the listeners at our preview party for this episode. Our sound designer is Ben Solee. And our theme music, Castle on the Cumberland, is written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn. This episode was produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Todd Hatton, and Joshua LeBure. Remember to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes of Made in the Middle. <laughs>